Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Counterpunch Podcast, a weekly Cracked Rackets production. Alongside my co-host, Archit Suresh, I'm Richard Mai, and this is a brand new podcast where we break down, analyze, and yes, sometimes argue about the biggest college and pro tennis headlines. Richard, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing very good. I'm very excited. I, for one, am thrilled to be on this podcast with you, first of all. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Yes. But I uh, think the best way to start ourselves off is to just get right into it. Why so not? Let's do it. headline of the week, uh, Carlos Alcaraz obviously wins in Indian Wells, now moves into Miami with some really good momentum. Do you think he's going to complete that Sunshine Double? Yes. Next question. In all seriousness, I think it'd be a safe bet. I mean, you'd be kind of foolish to say that he's not the prohibited favorite by all means. Obviously, you know, these conditions are maybe a little bit faster than what he was used to in Indian Wells, but he's shown he no signs of slowing down, certainly. Uh as we speak, he will be playing Taylor Fritz in the quarterfinals in a couple of hours. I would expect that to be a battle, quite frankly. I think Fritz can give him a real run for his money, but I do fully expect Alcaraz to come through that one. Outside of Fritz, I mean, really, I don't see too many challengers other than Medvedev, Sinner, the usual suspects. But, I mean, we saw last week Alcaraz coming through Every single person in the field decimating them didn't drop a set, hasn't dropped a set in Miami. I mean, the kid is special. That's all I can say. I mean, his game is something that I think many young players can aspire to be like. I mean, he has a very full game. Um, He knows how to, he has so many weapons in his arsenal and he knows how to use each one of them so well. I mean, his match in the finals of Indian Wells against Medvedev was a great example of that. He knows how to effectively use a drop shot. He knew that that was going to be one of Medvedev's weaknesses, and he used it to his advantage. Um, I think something that's so important is there's a saying like right idea, wrong execution. And I feel like that's something that you can apply to a lot of tennis players, not just pro or college, just even recreationally. Um, But I think something that Alcaraz has so well is he has the right idea and the right execution. He knows what to do and when to do it. You talk about tennis IQ, he has that in spades. And I think the real question is going to be who can stop him at this point. And what do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Going back to what you say, he doesn't really look like a 19-year-old out there. I mean, I look like a 19-year-old out on a tennis court, probably because, you know, I am one. But Carlos Alcaraz... Most definitely not. I mean, the patience that he displayed in that final against Medvedev, incredibly mature match from start to finish. I really don't think that he put a foot wrong at all in that match or in the Sinner match previously. I don't know who can stop him. I would like to see the Medvedev matchup on a faster court. I do think that's a little more beneficial to Daniil. I think this he could get a little bit more out of the serve in the Indian Wells final, maybe Alcaraz had, you know, a look in every single one of Medvedev's games, and that doesn't feel like hyperbole, but probably is. Outside of that, I really like Sinner in these conditions. Like, really, really like him. At the start of the tournament, I picked him to win it, but, I mean, the way Alcaraz has looked 
I don't know if I'm as confident in that as I still am. I still think we're going to see Alcaraz win this title again. I totally agree with what you said, and I also was going to say that I really like Yannick Center in these conditions. His win against Andre Rublev yesterday was extremely impressive. Um, but I think, I don't know if there's anyone in this draw this week, you know, at this time that's going to stop him. Like you said, I think if anything, you need to wait until a tournament where Novak's involved. And I think that can change a lot of tides and, you know, flip things on its head. Yeah. I mean, barring Novak making an appearance at a tournament, Alcaraz is unequivocally the best player in the world right now. It gets a little dicey when Novak's in the draw. I, I That's a matchup everyone wants to see, especially me. I mean, I cannot get that Madrid encounter between the two of them from last year out of my head. I need to see that match again. I'd love to see it in a best of five setting. I wish we could have gotten to see it during the Sunshine Double on a hard court. But, you know, Djokovic vaccine status pending, I guess. But I think certainly Alcaraz feels like... A moving train that just isn't going to be stopped. I don't see anyone stopping him right now. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if Sinner makes it a lot more competitive. They have a relatively even head-to-head. His ground strokes and his power from the baseline and his return game are things that can make Alcaraz uncomfortable. And we've seen it on the biggest stages. That classic match at the US Open last year. He beat him at Wimbledon. I mean... Sinner loves Miami. He really does. I believe he was a finalist here in 2021. One, yeah, when he lost to, I think that was the year that he lost to Hercatch in the final. Yes, he lost in that final to Hubi Hercatch. And then the next year, he was tearing it up until I know he was, I know, I think he beat Kyrios and had to pull out before. I think he would have made at least the semifinal that year. I pretty sure he was going to play Francisco Sarundolo, who shout out to him again has really loves Miami as well but uh yeah outside of Sinner redlining shout out to Alex Gruskin but outside of Sinner redlining I don't really see him doing much other than you know reaching that encounter with Alcaraz and Alcaraz dusting through everyone else no, I fully agree. And I mean, like, it's so hard to stop a train like that, really. Like you said, he's just running through his competition. And uh, I agree with you. I'm excited to see what happens in his match against Taylor. I think Fritz is looking really good. And he's look, and he looks really good. And in Indian Wells looks really good in Miami. Uh, curious to see how that goes. But moving on to our next headline, Juan Martin Del Potro just said that he wants to come back in time for the U.S. Open lot of questions for starters, let alone if we think it's even going to happen. Um, I mean, that isn't a question that's really up for us. It's a question for his body and his medical team. But let's start with how much of an impact does a former champion have on the main draw? I mean, it's profound, really. I mean... We see it all the time with the big three. I guess now it would be the big two with Federer retired, but we see it all the time. Even Andy Murray, I mean, he was the storyline of the Australian Open for the first week with those marathon matches against Berrettini, Kokonakis. I mean, a former champion just draws eyeballs to the court. 
and that's all you can be said. Del Potro, a guy that's universally loved by everyone. I would say probably the most unlucky champion by far. Obviously, you know, there are going to be plenty of people who throw out some other names, but Del Potro really at his best could beat anyone. And frankly, I just love to see him get the chance to go out on his own terms, fully healthy. We'll see. I mean, I'm not sure he's gotten the chance to really test out that knee and his leg, but fingers crossed. I'd love to see him in New York. He's a former champion there. Everyone loves him there. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed for Delpo. I mean, I agree with you. I'd love to see him go out on his own terms and be able to come back and play this tournament that he says he loves so much and is so special to him. Um, fully healthy and not limited by any injuries. Um, but I think part of it as well, I think what's also really dangerous about bringing in a former champ into the draw is you also have a certain level of experience that comes with that, you know? being able to play in those big moments on those big stages. That's something that I think the current or older gen, whatever you want to call it, will always have on the next gen. Um, a lot of next gen players don't have the experience playing the five sets, playing under those really, really tense conditions, the heat of the moment, you know, all eyes on you, biggest stages in the world. Um, we've seen those younger players you know, crack under the pressure. And so I think it's a huge thing for someone with more experience, you know, being able to outlast that five sets because they don't play five sets in Masters 1000s, let alone any tournament under that. It's just the majors. So when you have someone, especially that 2009 run uh, was incredible. Yeah. It was very special. And I mean, like you and I both got to watch it as fans when we were kids. Um so we know what Delpo is capable of, and I think that it'll be really, really awesome to see him here. And we mentioned going out on his own terms. Do we think that if he does play the U.S. Open, this could be his farewell tournament? Because unfortunately, I do. Yeah, I mean, well, to, to circle back, I mean, he already technically did have a farewell tournament. I don't think he was ready to close out that chapter but, you know, he has technically retired, but I don't think he has officially retired yet. And, you know, I'd love to see Delpo give it one last go at the U.S. Open. I'm not 100% sure it would happen. But if it did, I do think that would be the end. And it's a heck of a way to end your career, going back to the place where you won your first and unfortunately only slam. But I really... I really do feel like Delpo, if he was fully fit and firing, and that's a big if, everyone, but if he was fully fit, he could make some noise in a la Serena last year. I mean, he could he could become the story of the tournament, and, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it. Yeah, I mean, like, he came back from some, you know, hardships with his body back in 2018, I think it was, when he made the final and I mean, like, we know that players are capable to come back from injury and make these deep runs or impressive runs. Like you mentioned, Andy Murray, big story at the Australian Open. Um, but on the topic of injuries, very topically, unfortunately, Bianca Andreescu was wheeled out of her match on a wheelchair. Now, 
Bianca somebody that I had been watching the entire tournament. My eyes were on her. I had picked her at the beginning of Miami to be my one to watch as somebody who could make some real noise with some quote-unquote upsets. If you if we can call it an upset, you know, this is a this is a Grand Slam champion we're talking about here. But what do you, what do you make of it? I mean, for me, for example, like I just think that she had such good momentum and I really, I was ready to call her one of my favorites to win the whole thing. And coming back from injury on a road to re- to some really good success and recovery. And now she has to get wheeled out again. Yeah. I mean, what really is brutal is that she was finally, you know, physically and emotionally healthy after such a long period out of the game. Very similar to Delpo, former U.S. Open champ. And she really hasn't been the same since, but I really thought she was starting to get back on track. I watched every single Bianca Andreescu match at this year's Miami Open, and I mean, boy, was she incredible. That win against Maria Sakkari, brilliant. I mean, her her potential off of both wings, the ability to strike through the ball and just hit anybody off the court it really doesn't matter who it was but i mean sucks to see i actually have it up right here but she released a statement earlier today saying that the scan results did show that she'd torn two ligaments in her left ankle um she can't really give a time frame of how long it would take for her to get back in the game but she is she is notably optimistic saying that you know she's ready to go through with the rehab and prepper and the preparation to get back on the court i mean really really tough blow for bianca and rescue wish her nothing but the best yeah i mean i just think it's a really tough blow because i mean she was just coming back from yeah. an injury a few months ago and she was doing really well in her recovery and her game was developing and you saw you know, the culmination of all that effort in her Indian Wells run, even though it was cut short, um, but that's nothing to be blamed. You're, she was playing the number one player in the world, who we'll get to later on. But And she played again tight. Exactly. And again, you still look at that Miami run, and you look at how she played in this Sunshine Double, and there was so much progress and so much to be proud of herself for, especially coming back from that heavy injury. Yeah, so I just I think, mean, yeah, that just make, that just makes it all the all the worse, all the tougher. I thought she was playing at a really really high level throughout the Sunshine Double. I mean, she it, looked it, like the Bianca that we saw a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure if she was 2019 major winning Bianca and Rescue, but she was certainly close. I mean, if she could have gotten a real run of health and fitness, I think that she was starting to find it i mean i i would have been picking her to get back to that form pretty quickly but even now i do think she is in a much better place both physically and emotionally than her first run with injuries but i mean it's so tough to come back from injuries especially when they just seem to continuously happen to you yeah but i think honestly my takeaway is after seeing how well she could come back from that injury, it gives me some confidence and, and some hope that she can do the same thing coming back from this one. 
But all the best to Bianca Andreescu. And now to our final pro headline for this week. Let's talk about, will there be a new quote-unquote big three, but this time on the women's side? Uh, We're talking Iga Svantec, Elena Rybakina, and Arena Sabalenka. What do we think? Thoughts? Um, well, I have plenty of thoughts, first of all. <laughs> do you want to break them down one by one? Well, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we have time. Let's start with our world number one, Iga Svantec, who pulled out of Miami and the Billie Jean King Cup with a rib injury, um, which I just think is a huge hit to the Miami draw and also Team Poland. Um, but I think... I have so many things to say about Iga Świątek. I really do. Um, from the fan perspective, her matches are entertaining. They're fun to watch. She plays with a really great fire and strength. Her game is, in a in its own little way, kind of unorthodox to the women's tour. She plays with very heavy topspin, um, which the women's tour typically has a lot of players that play flat. Um, amazing so, so movement. Amazing really, movement. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. For sure. Really quickly. Obviously, I very sorry to interrupt, but I have always had this theory that if <laughs> you're gonna laugh, but if you took Taylor Fritz in a bottle, right, and you made the serve a little bit worse, but you also just made him an elite athlete, like elite of the elite athlete, and just gave him every intangible possible you would get Iga Svantec the stroke You're not production wrong. the stroke production really really similar they love the flat precise backhand it's their most dependable weapon but when when the forehand is firing it's game breaking heavy spin can redirect pace from both sides pretty well well pretty well I, Iga does it historically well and Fritz also does it very very well but uh I mean, I have always felt that that comparison is fair. I mean, I would say Fritz is the ATP version of Iga. I don't want to disrespect Iga or, you know, have her fans come at me. But, you know, if you do come at me, that's fine. But <laughs> That's kind of what we're here for. But I, yeah. I agree with you. I think you make a very strong point. I think their games are very, you know, comparable. I think the big difference is, is that Taylor has a stronger serve, but Iga has better movement and just athleticism to a certain degree. I don't want to discredit Taylor, but her movement is incredible. It's well, t- so yeah. good. The yes. way that she's able to, like you said, redirect pace with, and I'm not talking with her body, moving to all different points in the court no matter at what point. She's very precise with her movement. Um, shot making, backhand is not the biggest weapon, but when that backhand is on, she's firing that thing down the line. Uh, her forehand has a lot of heavy topspin, very strong, um, super fun to watch. Um, it makes a lot of sense that her idol was Rafa Nadal because she has this kind of whippy forehand that has so much top, that puts so much topspin on the ball that makes her such a natural clay court player, hence why she has two French Open titles. Um, yeah, at yeah. 21 years old. Like, yeah. listen, I obviously... Well, let's get into the whole big three discussion thing. Um, obviously, 
if you had asked me last year, I would have said unequivocally, it is a big one. No one is even close to Iga. Even on her bad days, she was still two tiers better than everyone else on tour. Now, I mean, I would say she's one tier better than everyone else on tour. Maybe outside of Rubakina Sabalenka. If you want to throw Krajikova in there, I wouldn't be mad at it. But, I mean... <sighs> The thing with Iga is I we just need to calm down. I like I'm not ready to say that she isn't she was winning at a historical level. And I mean the win streak from last year, the dominance that she showed on clay, even the win out the US Open. I think if you replayed that Australian Open match with Danielle Collins, now she wins that one pretty quickly. But I mean, I just yeah, I mean, I have a hard time saying that Iga isn't, you know, still the unequivocal favorite when she enters a draw, but I do understand that, you know, she hasn't shown the ability to improvise when, you know, a player is playing their best, and she hasn't. I mean, obviously, there were the injury concerns, so I don't want to talk too much about the Indian Wells matches and Miami, obviously, she's pulled out, but... You know, given the state of her game right now, I would tell Iga fans, don't worry. Things are going to be okay long term, but who knows? Honestly, I was watching the Indian Wells matches. Um, We're going to keep opinions aside, but I want it to be noted and on the record that I am an Iga Sviantek super fan. Like, I've been watching this girl since juniors. I know what she's come from. I know the trajectory and all the progress that she's had to make. And honestly, what I noticed in those latter Indian Wells matches was kind of, for lack of better term, a deflation. Kind yes. of, there was a level of uncertainty. There was a level of hesitation. Um, if you looked at the earlier matches, where she, uh, her match against Emma Raducanu and her match against Bianca Andreescu... No matter how well Raducanu and Andreescu played, Iga was there fully confident, no hesitation, no holding back. She was going for all of her shots, but I think this injury put a lot of doubt in her mind. Now, what I think I want to know, I think is so mature for someone who's just only a few years older than us, Archet, is that she did hire a, like, a sports psychologist onto her team, and something that she's been working on uh, that she's been outspoken about is, you know, taking pressure off of herself. And I think that's super important because you're not going to win every single match. Even when Novak or Rafa or Roger were at the top of the game, Serena was at the top of the game, there were still people that were beating them. They weren't unbeatable. And I'm not. And when it comes to those big three on the men's side, I'm not talking about each other. I'm talking about you had, like, Thomas Burdick and Stan Wawrinka and Andy Murray, Andy Roddick, Juan Martín Del Potro. The list goes on of guys that could beat them. And I think it's really important to understand that you are going to win every single match. And taking that pressure off of yourself and being a lot more confident in your ability is super important. And you, ta- and you look at the last two matches against Elena Rybakina, we're not great for her. And it does look like, I don't know, maybe Rabakina gets in her head. I have no idea. But 
there's something that Rabakan is doing that I'm still trying to figure out myself. What is she doing to kind of counter Iga's game? For me, what I've noticed is I think Rabakan, if anything that I've noticed, she's been doing a very good job to play on the full offensive and not allow Iga to get back into these points and control the game. The way Iga wins is because she makes you play her game. Yeah, I mean, I w- it does feel like there is a specific game style that is now kind of the recipe for making Iga uncomfortable on court. And Rabakina is the perfect example of that with her easy power, the fluidness of her ground strokes, and how easy she's able to generate pace off of the serve. I mean, she's able to get Iga off of her spots. She can... Her, she can hit with depth, pace, whatever you need. She And she's perfectly capable of finishing points w- from the back of the court. In Her transition game is very, very, very solid. I mean, Rabakina, that prototype of player, the Rabakina, the Sabalenka, the, even Krajikova to an extent with her depth and her return of serve and her ability to play on her own terms that has posed a bit of a matchup problem for Iga recently where you know maybe maybe it's just Iga doesn't feel as confident against those players that she would have this time last year I mean last year Iga was on top of the world now players are starting to figure out how to live with her they're starting to you know find a way to play close to their best games and Iga isn't playing her absolute best tennis. Rabakina, Sabalenka, Sviantek, it's clear that they are currently the three best players in the world. I mean, it just is what it is. There's no shame in losing to Elena Rabakina at a Grand Slam, at a Masters 1000. Same thing with Sabalenka, same thing with Krajikova. Even the Pagula loss at the ATP Cup. I mean, I wouldn't hold any of those too much against Iga. Honestly, moving to those other two that we mentioned in the quote-unquote big three, I mean, Elena Rabakina, ever since, you know, Wimbledon last year and specifically for the entirety of this calendar year, 2023, she's been incredible. And you talk about that very, very, I don't know how to describe it, fluid, smooth game style, um, flat, deep, with good pace. Um, I just, I don't know how to describe Rabakina's game style. There's not, honestly, uh, I don't think there's an X factor. And I mean that in a good way. I mean that in, she's so good all around. There's not, I think to me, at least a single standout point of her game. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think maybe the X factor is just the easy generation of pace that she's able to do. I mean, shout out to the Yonex V-Core. It's a sweet racket. But, I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty sure Elena Rabakina would be a pretty good tennis player without it. But, um... I mean, I, I say mean, the same thing about Yannick Sinner, to, you know, with... I don't see that there being an X-factor in his game. To me, his X-factor is his consistency. Um... I mean, he's so good at pinpointing, you know, and making good shots and landing them exactly where he wants them to. And to a certain exp- uh, to a certain point, if we're doing ATP, WTA, you know, comparisons, you can say the same thing for Rabakina. There's 
despite there being a different style of shot, if you talk about the consistency and pinpoint accuracy, there's that similarity to me. And talking about Arena Sabalenka, I think the biggest thing that I've seen from her, um, especially in the Australian Open, what shocked me was you saw a much more mentally stable Sabalenka. She was confident, she was cool, she was calm, she was collected. And it's honestly been the key to her success. When she gets fired up and she gets in her own head, that's what, if anything, had been leading to her losses, let's say, last year. Um, and I think now she's coming in um, a lot more sure of herself, um, a lot calmer, and like I said, mentally stable. And I think that's been uh, very impressive from her and a huge point of her success. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would say, obviously, we know how bad the double faults were a while back, but credit to Sabalenka because... You know, she took the time. She went to go see a surf specialist. She went into the garage. She got in her she got in her bag, as the kids would say. And you know, she made some improvements. She made adjustments. She's a lot more mentally secure on you know the second serve, first serve. I, she just is. I mean, you could see the tools from previous years. You could see the raw power. The ability to move throughout the court and still just generate so much pace and spin and depth off her ground strokes and the serve. I mean, it's game-breaking potential, but what what was missing was, you know, the emotional maturity to and you know, to some extent the ability to rein things in, you know, do I go for this shot at this moment? Shot selection has certainly improved with Sabalenka. The maturity. She's not as erratic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she it's a consistent... She's found a way to consistently package her power and spin and depth into a game style that wins matches effectively and efficiently. I mean, it's, it's scary is what it is. I think if anybody has the potential on the tour right now to really be a foil to Iga consistently outside of, you know, Rabakina. It's, it's Sabalenka. I mean, she, she has won a major this year. She finally got, she finally broke through. I think the big thing that I noticed was the big moments when you're down a double break got, you know, let's not even begin to start with break point match point. She was still level-headed. You couldn't see. She wasn't showing her cards. She was calm. She wasn't, you know, frantic. You know, her, like you said, shot selection was not erratic. It, was, it wasn't instinctual. It was thought out. It was smart. It was calculated. Um, and that's honestly been, I think, what we've been waiting to see from her. And now that she's given it to us, I mean, look at the benefits that she's reaping. Now, we yeah. mentioned... Pagula, Krejcikova, are there any other names that you want to throw out there that you think can hang with these three? Well, can hang is a different thing. I'm still not, you know, 100% sure on Pagula being able to beat any of those players consistently. I think definitely Krejcikova deserves to be in that group. Um, and... 
sorry, let me just backtrack on this. It doesn't have to be a big three. I don't think, like, yes, okay. In some ways, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena, what they've done for the sport is incredible and will always be appreciated. It's time to let some of these players be their own selves. And let's not compare them to the big three, Serena, and that whole crew. Obviously, like, Iga, generational talent. She has the potential to be that caliber of player. But I think the main thing we're starting to see is a level of consistency from the top names that perhaps we wouldn't have seen in previous years on the WTA in a post-Serena world. I mean, if you take a look at Sabalenka, Rabakina, Krajikova, even Ons Jabur, she's dealing with her own injury struggles as a right I now. I mean, but, throw but, Jesse Pagul up there. Throw Coco Goff up there. You yeah, look absolutely. at, if you want to take it back to, let's say, like, 2012-2013 WTA was one of my favorite, you know, eras of the women's tour. And you really had so many different names able to cut, you know, able to come through. You had Serena and Azarenka and Sharapova and Rudwanska and um, I don't even know the start, quote unquote, of Simona Halep. <laughs> um, so many other names uh, that are escaping me right now: Sarah Ronnie, Roberta Vinci. Um, I could go on and on. I will stop myself though. <laughs> But you had so many names that were fighting for stuff, and now you're seeing consistency in the top three. I mean, you would watch some of those players in, you know, a few years ago. For example, you know, I mentioned Rudwanska and Vinci and Arani, and you extended to Wozniacki and Kerber. They would go on hot streaks, and then they would lose to, like, world number 200 and whatever. Somebody that they pull off the street. But here you're seeing, like you said, a really good consistency from these top names. I mean, you have Iga 1, Sabalenka 2. Who knows where Rabakina would be right now if those 2,000 points from Wimbledon had counted last year? Um, yeah, I mean, and, absolutely. Yeah. Right, Rabakina, rankings aside, she is a top three player right now. And we know that for sure. Coming off, you don't win a Wimbledon title, reach the finals of the Australian Open, and then win an Indian Wells title against the player you lost the Australian Open final to and not be considered one of the elite of the elite. So, I mean, that, that's certainly the case, but I think it's just commendable to see, you know, the level of consistency that we've seen that a lot of detractors of the WTA Tour would have complained about earlier, saying... Oh, you know, there's real, there's really no consistency at the top of the women's game. It feels like so and so is winning a new major at the start of every year, and to some extent, yes, that was true. But I mean, certainly now it doesn't feel like there's inconsistency at the top of the game. It's it really does feel like we've reached a solidified A and B tier of players. Even if you want to throw in players like Belinda Bencic, Caroline Garcia, in I mean, yeah. It's just, it's really, really cool to see. Let me ask you this, you know, to kind of wrap up this headline. Who are we surprised is not in that conversation? I have one name that I want to start this off with, and it's and Naomi I'm Osaka. Pretty, yes, yes, that very much. I'm very the same surprised. Same name for the both of us. Yeah. I was very ready 
after, you know, let's say in that 2019-2020 era, I was, let's just say 2020 and 21, specifically, I was ready to say that this next few years was going to be Naomi and Iga domination. I was fully ready to say that. Well, After I, Iga's I, performance in the twenty in the twenty twenty French Open, plus her win in Rome in twenty one, you look at Naomi's um, last few Grand Slam wins. I was ready to say that those two were going to rule the sport, um, and now it's only one of them. Listen, I don't know if I can stand for the Ash Barty erasure from you, but <laughs> um, well, she's retired. Naomi is well, not. Well, well, but, I mean, if you had asked us three years ago, I mean... Well, yeah, it, sure, Ash Barty, throw her in there, yeah. Yeah, For I sure, mean, but I'm just saying... It certainly with, felt... Yeah. Like, it with a 2023 like, Ash Barty <laughs> retired lens. Okay, well, yes. Forgive me. Hind, yeah, hindsight, 2020, yeah. but, I mean, if we're gonna... It, I mean, I believe your words were in 2020, if you had asked... Especially coming off of the... 2020 US Open, 2021 Australian Open, where she had beaten Jennifer Brady in that Australian Open final. Oh, Jennifer Brady. I mean, yikes. But we'll get into that later. But um, I mean, with Naomi Osaka, like it, it just, it, it doesn't feel right. It still doesn't feel right that she's not in this group. It doesn't feel entirely right that Ash Barty is in this group. I, I mean, I really hope this is wrong, but both are currently expecting children right now. Uh, I mean, Naomi has said, you know, that she is planning on making a return to tennis. I would expect that to be the case, but obviously you never know. There were a couple of retirement rumors earlier and Ash Barty seems really, really happy in retirement and, you know, credit to her. Wish we could have seen her mix it up with Iga, and like you know the Sabalenkas and the Rabakinas, but at the same time you know she's got to do what's best for her I mean I remember seeing Naomi Osaka I mean I saw her first round against uh Angelique Kerber and I think that was 2017 at the U.S. Open um the year after I think that was the year after Kerber had won um but I mean there was something so magnetic about watching her because she plays with such sharpness and precision. Her form, her technique is very is very precise. Um, it's honestly like watching a knife cut butter. It's so kind of yeah. it she strikes the ball with such a presence and such power and precision that yeah. it's so much fun to watch her play. And her game style, again, is so fun to watch. It's refreshing. It's powerful, but not... I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, it, it's it seems not like power, your, It seems powerful, It wasn't your traditional springy. level yeah. of power. It wasn't yeah, your yeah. Serena, Victoria, Azarenka, Sharapova era type of power. It was kind of this new, you know, very the sharp... New age, yeah. 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 It, 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 it felt... Powerful, powerful but springy, but springy at, the at the same time, time almost yeah like it it's a great way to put it and when you know the first serve and the forehand were clicking i mean money money but yeah i mean do we think that naomi osaka is going to get back to that level i i hate to put she any could. predictions out there for that she fully I mean, could i mean yes. serena williams was in you know grand slam finals when she came back 
um, after having Olympia. So you never know what could happen. Yeah. But well, I mean, I, mean, I think. I think obviously Naomi was struggling mentally and physically on the court prior to, you know, her ex- extended time off due to the pregnancy, but I mean, maybe maybe the time away from the game is what she needs right now. Maybe she needs to come back with a new perspective that's, you know, fresh and isn't brought down by the negativity that was surrounding her and maybe it it'll be freeing almost when she steps back on the court and she'll, you know, find a way to get back to the top of the game i mean it would be an incredibly fun watch to watch naomi osaka go at it against the egas sabalenkas rabakinas of the world that's for sure but yeah i mean that's kind of our pro headlines for this week i'm gonna let you take the reins on this next part because this <laughs> is a bit more your wheelhouse well yeah very, very much so as you know Cracked Rackets' SEC correspondent. Let's, you know, let's head over to some college tennis. Our matchup of the week this week, number four, Kentucky, at number eight, Georgia, in Athens. One and two in the SEC. Georgia at one, by the way. Currently undefeated. I mean, it, it's going to be a fun one. I mean, I fortunately will, will be covering the event for Cracked Rackets. Um... Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. I It's going to be a tight one. I wouldn't say that... I mean, college tennis in Athens is by far the most electric environment in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I would just have to say that, like, just watch college tennis, folks. If you don't watch college tennis, watch college tennis. It's fun. I promise you. And if you but, choose to watch college tennis, you can make sure to get your feeds from us over here at Crash Rackets. <laughs> yes, um, everyone, be sure to check out our SEC Cross Court Cast. This match will be streamed on our Cross Court Cast Friday, 5 p.m. Be sure to check it out, SEC Network slash ESPN Plus. Have at it. Now that we've you know covered the basics, why don't we delve deeper into the match? I mean... Just there's just talent across the board. I I would want to start with Georgia's number one singles player, number four ranked Ethan Quinn. It hasn't been the fall that he certainly would have expected. It hasn't been the fall that Georgia fans have expected from him. But I, it does feel like he is on the up. I mean, I think the last ranked match he had, or fellow top 10 match that he had was against Johannes Monday. That was a tough 6-2, 6-2 loss. Johannes Monday of Tennessee, by the way. A tough 6-2, 6-2 loss. Um, but still, Georgia found a way to win that one 4-3 after being down 3-1, saved multiple dual matches. I would kind of expect a similar scoreline here. Maybe not as dramatic, but I would expect a very, very similar. I I would say that it's 4-3 either way. Ah, are you really going to make me do a score prediction here? (laughs) Listen, okay, why don't I do do the predictions? I will say that, actually, you know what? College tennis fans, you deserve this. I, just give me one second, I will pull up the lineups and I will go line by line. Oh, you're going to go line by line? Or as close to line by line as I can. Why don't we do I, it I have way? I have a lot of respect for that. That's a bold choice to go there. Um, well, actually, 
Actually, I probably shouldn't do that given that I'll be at the match covering it for Cracked Rackets and we'll be posting post-match interviews on the Cracked Rackets social medias. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for those. But you know, you know what? I'll give I'll give my prediction. I am not Alex Gruskin, so I do not have to commentate the match, but I yeah, you know what? I'm I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you guys a a brief brief prediction i think with okay liam draxel and ethan quinn at one philip henning and alafia Ayani at two honestly i have no idea how either one of those are going to shape out i could see every single name that i mentioned they're winning i'm gonna say they split lines one and two um line three trent bride versus joshua lapadot that's my swing match right there i think whoever that and whoever wins the doubles point will be by far the most influential match of the season. Lapadot, for what it's worth, has been exceptional this year um, for Kentucky. Sorry, I should probably mention that for those of you who aren't aware of the college tennis game like we are at Cracked Rackets. But Lapadot has been exceptional. Don't be surprised if he makes a run at NCAAs this year. But Trent Bride has looked really, really resurgent. The former All-American who, you know, had a down year last year. But he looks really, really good. There's depth across the lineup. Uh, Charlie Cosne plays six for Kentucky. He's been great. Blake Kreuter at four. Theodore Huska at five for UGA. I mean, things... That's going to be a fun one. I promise you, that is going to be a fun one. I'm going to say... I'm going to say it goes 4-3. Because it's a home match, I would lean Georgia, but at the same time, I like Kentucky's depth maybe a little more, and they play one of the best doubles points in the country. So I'll just I'll leave it at that. I, I, mean, I have to agree on that doubles point. I mean, I do think that it's going to come down to that crucial doubles point. It's super. It's a two. It's a super tight matchup. They're both on seven match win streaks. It's gonna be. I mean, that's that's huge momentum builder. I mean, that's super important in college tennis. Is coming off of good solid wins. Uh, consistency is key. Um, so coming in on a win streak is a huge confidence uh, booster. Uh, but I have to agree. I think that when you look at at least a conference as big as the SEC. Uh, that home court advantage can prove very crucial. So, I'll especially agree with you. in I'll, Athens, I yeah, Athens. I'll agree with you. I'll lean in favor of the Bulldogs, but I think it's it's gonna be really close there. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be a tight one. I I'm already regretting saying that that I think Georgia is gonna win, but I'm a hundred percent sure that if I had said Kentucky was gonna win, I'd be regretting that too. So. Be sure to check that out. College tennis fan, non-college tennis fan, if you watch that match, you are going to become one. With that said, it's time to wrap up this first episode. But before we go, we leave you with a shameless plug. Make sure to tweet at the both of us. Um, for myself, at Richard, my M-A-J-0-3, so R-I-C-H-A-R-D, maj03 on twitter and instagram hit me up in the dms tweet at me send us some questions so we have some for you guys next week Archie. Yes, yes absolutely um 
at Suresh Archit, S-U-R-E-S-H-A-R-C-H-I-T on both Twitter and Instagram. Listen, if you know you don't want to make it a public tweet, go ahead. Just slide in the DMs. I really don't mind. You know, send us whatever. Really, whatever you want answered. We will do our best to make sure that that is answered. We also will be setting up a voicemail line for you all to call in and ask us questions later also along with that be sure to follow at cracked rackets on instagram and twitter anything else for you richard nope that's it for me oh actually one more shout out to super producer daniel westoff for the editing job that he does each and every week each and every day each and every hour every minute for cracked rackets he truly does make everything run out here But that's all the time we've got for you guys this week. So make sure to join us next week when we run it back. Hopefully with less of our own opinions and more answering your guys' questions. But thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys next week. 